Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about books and literature of interest to LDS readers, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. I'm Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Christina Rossetti. Christina holds a PhD in Religious Studies from the University of California, Riverside, and teaches Humanities at Utah Tech University at St. George, Utah. Christina, hello. Hi. And Christina has created a Joanna Brooks History Conference at Utah Tech, which she's going to tell us about at, at the end of this podcast. I'm also joined by Andrew Hamilton. Andrew is the book review editor at the Association for Mormon Letters and teaches English at the College of Southern Idaho. Welcome, Andrew. Hello from cold, frozen Idaho. Okay, and today we're going to talk about books in Mormon studies published in 2022. So let's start off by talking about our favorite books of the year. Christina, tell us about yours. No pressure to name my favorite Mormon book in 2022. There was so many, if if people could see the Google Doc, it's 12 pages of books published in Mormonism. But if I had to pick one book for 2022, drumroll, it's Method Infinite by Cheryl Bruno. Nick Buturski and Joe Swick. A little audio insert there. This book had been in the works for something like 20 years of just research and writing to get this book together. It will for sure, without question, be the definitive overview of the relationship between Mormonism and Freemasonry. It is beautifully written. It opens with a beautiful story of someone coming back to Nauvoo after it had been raided and destroyed and seeing really being struck by the Masonic temple as being destroyed and not, and just that being kind of the point of interest, the connection between the Relief Society and Masonry that Cheryl Bruno overviews is fantastic. And I think it's just really going to be a staple on kind of thinking through the esoteric dimensions of Mormonism. So without question, Method Infinite. Andrew, you read that book too, right? Yes. I also quite enjoyed uh, Method Infinite. I just found it fascinating how much uh, masonry kind of was in every aspect of people's lives back then and all the different connections and things they found. Uh, some people felt there's maybe some stretches here and there as to how much those connections are actually there, but so many things they've documented and showed different ways uh, that masonry was a part of Joseph Smith's life and how it kind of makes its way to the church and the way that he would tell stories and introduce doctrines. It was a great book. I highly recommend it. I definitely agree with Christina that this will be the definitive work on Mormonism and Masonry for some time. They did a launch of the book at Benchmark Books in Salt Lake. Shout out to Benchmark. And Nick Lutersky made an interesting comment that just based on like an argument or what he saw in the historical record that I've thought about ever since then, and it's been a year now, and he made a comment about how Based on the documents, there's compel- it's compelling to consider that maybe Joseph Smith was trying to create a Mormon rite of masonry rather than kind of its own re- like a Mormon religion, but making a Mormon rite of masonry. Um, just given how fast they were trying to get people through the endowment, how fast they were initiating people into masonry before they were removed from Nauvoo, and I thought that was such a like an innovative and compelling way to consider Mormon history that we don't see many of those kind of arguments often. In Mormon studies. And so I was really excited about seeing people thinking kind of that way. But the other thing I want to note for anyone who has a copy of the book, there is a Royal Archmason cipher on the front and back cover binding. My boyfriend did that on the way home from the book launch. And so something to like spend some time on tonight or tomorrow. 
Andrew, you, you have a favorite book. Tell us about that. Yes. And I'll be honest. I, I read so many books I enjoyed last year and I know so many people who helped write some of those books. I feel kind of like I'm betraying people if I pick just one, but if I have to name one book that I both enjoyed and found very informative and also connects to my youth, you might say it was Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and the Imposter Behind the World's Most Notorious Diaries by Rick Emerson. This was not released by an LDS company. It came from Ben Bella Books. And okay, I went to high school during the height of the Satanic Panic. Uh, the McMartin preschool trials were going on while I was in high school. I can't remember how many uh, firesides I attended on the evils of rock and roll and Dungeons and Dragons. And even Piers Anthony books got kind of thrown into that pile by one of my bishops. And a lot of this ties back to an LDS woman named Beatrice Sparks, who was the author, not the editor, of the books Go Ask Alice and Jay's Journal. Now, when I was in high school, these were on such a waiting list, it took you forever to get the chance to read them. The school would only even check out like photocopies because they were so worried about the originals disappearing. And everybody was just fascinated by these books. And it turns out that the author completely made them up. Yes, there was a real Alice and there was a real Jay, and there was like one or two very small facts in the books that were real, but the rest of it was all her making the whole thing up. And these books had a major influence on the satanic panic of the 80s and all of the fallout from that. And Rick Emerson documents it very thoroughly. He investigated Beatrice Sparks' life. He got to know the real Alice. She's still alive. She's not dead, by the way, and, and interviewed her and some of her friends. He went to Pleasant Grove, Utah, and found out all about the young man who uh, influenced Jay's journal and interviewed family members and people that knew him and, and, and cops who were involved in uh, training people about how to identify satanic crimes and other things. And, uh, teachers got in trouble for using Dungeons and Dragons to motivate just all sorts of stuff. And he kind of puts this all together in this big, fascinating, fast-paced uh, book. And I, I was just really enthralled by it. It's really quite interesting. And I think anybody who's interested in LDS connections of the Satanic Panic or might remember that from the 80s, who's ever read you know, Jay's Journal or, or Go Ask Alice or any of these things will be absolutely fascinated by this book. Stephen Carter did a really interesting podcast I... on the on the Sunstone uh, podcast about it recently and about kind of comparing her creation of these stories based on a few facts on to other Mormons who have created things uh, of perhaps dubious origins and the good that they can do and but the but the the damage they can do as well. Really interesting uh, thoughts on the book. Sorry, Christina, go ahead. No, so I I haven't read the book. Um, but I've heard so much about it, mostly because, you know, I was in high school in the early 2000s and everyone read Go Ask Alice and loved it. So I remember reading Go Ask Alice. I read the paperback version, the one that has her face on it. Um, and we should have all known when the sub the subtitle is A Real Diary. Like, okay. All right, Beatrice. A Real Diary. We should have all known. After a while, Beatrice started spitting one of these kind of books out every few years. And Emerson points out if you start reading them all together, I mean, she just, she like plagiarizes herself. Like she couldn't think of new things and she almost repeats whole passages, you know, that in these books over and over. And how nobody managed to catch this or just her made up credentials or anything else is really kind of wild. But it's a just a whole fascinating story. So, 
So I, I just real quick, I'm, and I haven't read the book. The whole thing is fake. Oh yes, yeah. Well, so no, well, kind of. They're, they're again, they're both based on real people, and that she had talked to at least or had some material from them. But we don't have, like, for instance, she claims she got this material from Alice, but none of it's in the archives. So it's kind of a mystery. We don't know exactly what she had. So she was, Beatrice Sparks is like the equivalent of an EFY counselor at BYU back in the late 60s. And there was a young lady there who talked to her about some struggles she had with drug addiction and some other things. And so she very loosely based it on that, but she's still alive. So obviously she didn't die and, and most of it was just kind of made up. And same thing with Jay's journal, the family of the real Jay gave her the journals and she used two or three entries but again most of it's just kind of all, all the satanism stuff was stuff she threw in none of that was real and, and most of it's just completely made up the family was horrified when they read jay's journal and all the stuff that she added and and, and were really quite angry with her so very very fascinating story 2005 me feels betrayed <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you my favorite i picked a novel stephen l peck's hey K's void I'm agog at how beautiful and fun to read this book is. Steve's previous work has placed him among Mormonism's most creative and respected authors, but this is now my favorite Peck novel. He creates an expansive view of the atonement, pushing the limits of the possibilities for forgiveness and healing. It's got these four main characters, a general authority who it is stated that God hates. And there's a little bit of theological discussion about how, if God can hate or not. Um, his secretary, who has a secret. A man from Moab who, while serving in the army in the 70s, is tricked by the Red Army faction to provide materials for a, a bomb, which results in the death of several people. And a German scholar philosopher, Heike. Also, Nephi appears as uh, the Moabite's guardian angel and another, another guardian angel as well. And all these characters have layers of ethical dilemmas. And there's a lot of tragedy in this book. People get killed. Some terrible things happen. But there's also a lot of joy and laughter. Uh, Jennifer Quist, who reviewed the book for Dialogue, said, We have been using in Mormonism C.S. Lewis's stories as literary representations of the atonement for years. But maybe it's time to use the stories of Heike, Arrow, Nephi, Alma, Loon, Elder Holmberg, etc. as stories told in General Conference and over the pulpit to explain the atonement. And I agree. So that's the one I recommend. Cool. Steve Peck is fabulous. I fully believe that's an incredible book. All right, let's turn to Mormon history. So the two of you both have read a lot of these books. So tell us about, go ahead and start with wherever you'd like. Right out the gate, um, I chose No Place for Saints, Mobs and Mormons in Jack Jacksonian America. And I chose this, I mean, because it won best book, Mormon History Association this year or in 2022. Um, I also had the opportunity to be on a panel with Adam Jordan talking about this book. And it is a really fantastic look at the Missouri period of Mormon history. Um, we're so used to, I mean, I say weaves, I don't know, people in Mormon studies are so used to talking about Nauvoo and talking about those, those periods of persecution. And Missouri is really interesting here because the kind of typical reasons we talk about for persecution aren't present. Polygamy hadn't really been widely introduced yet. Um, and so he's kind of looking at a different perspective on why were Mormons persecuted? What was it that led to this mass mob against the Mormons? Um, and he looks at it in through the lens of Jacksonian America and what the American landscape looked like, Mormons being a large voting block. Um, and so it gave this really kind of interesting view of what was it about Mormonism that made people so uncomfortable? What was it about Mormonism that made people so angry? 
Um, and it's just a very fabulous overview of that period that from someone outside of the field of Mormon studies, kind of really thinking through these bigger issues and contextualizing Mormons in a bigger framework. Um, it's also really short. So for people who are interested in that period, religious persecution, religious violence, issues of religious freedom, um, all of those kind of things, cannot recommend it enough. It's really good. I agree with Christina. No Place for Saints is an excellent book. Uh, Kevin Folkman, who reviewed it for the Association of Mormon Letters, said, In No Place for Saints, Adam Jortner has placed Smith's new church squarely in the midst of sectarian chaos of antebellum America. Uh, this was the time of the Indian Removal Act, forcing Native Americans to relocate west of the Mississippi, the founding of the anti-Mason movement, and the burning of Catholic convents over rumors of sex abuse and witchcraft and slavery. Uh, no other work I have read so skillfully traces all these elements into a coherent explanation of why people who considered themselves good American citizens were so capable of scorn, hatred, and physical violence against other American citizens. Uh, it, it's just a fascinating book and really helps contextualize all the violence and things that were going on at the time. Very good. Okay, Andrew, do you have a book? Uh, yes, uh, this one kind of like uh, the Unmasked Alice was not necessarily meant just for an LDS audience, but uh, Barred by Congress, How a Mormon, a Socialist, and an African-American uh, Elected by the People Were Excluded from Office. It's by Robert Lichman and was released by the University of Kansas, and it focuses on B.H. Roberts, who's the Mormon interest there, uh, and two others, Victor L. Berger and Adam Clayton. All three of these men were uh, voted into the House of Representatives and then excluded from uh, taking their seats. Uh, obviously, B.H. Roberts, because of the Mormon polygamy uh, question, Victor L. Berger uh, for his anti-war stance during the uh, First World War, and Adam Clayton, supposedly, uh, for misusing congressional funds, uh, but he wasn't doing anything anyone else at the time was doing. Uh, he was an African-American and very liberal in his politics and not very popular, and it was basically an excuse uh, to kick him out of the government. And... Uh, Lichman goes through and compares these three men and he tells their stories and uh, shows how even though the people uh, voted for them, in some cases multiple times, uh, because they were unpopular, uh, Congress found excuses to keep them uh, out of the government because they denied the will of the people and he connects us all and all the political things going on. And I think most Mormon audiences would, would find this book to be pretty interesting. Christina, how about another one? Uh, yeah, so I want to note uh, John Bielecki's Machines for Making Gods, uh, Mormonism, Transhumanism, and Worlds Without End. It's just such a great title. Um, a lot, you know, in especially in, you know, late 20th century and now, people really talk about this, like, con conflict between religion and science, and are these compatible, and can we exist in a secular world and be religious? And one of the things that John Bielecki notes, which is such a great intervention in the debate, is are people like Mormon transhumanists, and specifically the Mormon Transhumanist Association, that kind of looks at Mormonism as a way of navigating both of these through the lens of theosis. And Mormonism postulates exaltation and how can science and technology be used to benefit exaltation and benefit humanity. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting way of kind of grappling with this question of religion and science rather than put them constantly at 
pods or try to look at both of them through different historic lenses, but actually looking at the subgroups within religion that are really on the ground, tangibly blending them in innovative ways. And religious transhumanists, I think, are really a unique way of answering the question of how to be religious in the 21st century in a way that you know, we talk a lot about like liberal Christianity or different like liberal expressions of religion. Um, But transhumanism is a very unique expression of religion that tries to grapple with modernity um, in a way that I think is going to be increasingly interesting. So for anyone who's interested in technology, STEM fields generally and religion, um, even outside of Mormonism, but trying to understand how any religion can grapple with the sciences, cannot recommend enough. Fascinating. All right. So another uh, history book I quite enjoyed this last year was called Justice and Mercy, Studies of Transgression in the Latter-day Saint Community uh, by Gary James Vergera and edited by Brian Buchanan from Benchmark Books. We'll throw a little Benchmark plug in there again. So back in 2011 and 12, uh, Gary Bergera wrote three articles for the Journal of Mormon History called Transgression in the LDS Community, the cases of Albert Carrington, Richard R. Lyman, and Joseph F. Smith, the presiding patriarch Joseph F. Smith, not the apostle and prophet. Uh, And each of these men were involved in some sort of sexual transgression that caused them to lose their standing in the church hierarchy. Uh, With this book, those three articles were compiled, along with a chapter on Thomas Taylor, uh, who was a bishop in the 1800s and was involved in some uh, homosexual. uh, relationships, and, and it tells the stories of these four men, and then it adds uh, some appendices by Levina Fielding Anderson that talk about uh, excommunication and sexual transgression and other things in the church, and really a, just a fascinating study on excommunication and, and again, sexual uh, ideas that are outside of the kind of the mainstream of the church, uh, and, and very, very fascinating history of, of how that's worked and how it's affected the LDS community. There's also a great Journal of Mormon History article by Gary Berger that covers a lot of these topics if people are interested, um, worth reading. Okay, Christina, another one? A really good one that I don't think got enough, not enough people talked about, uh, was Stuart Davenport's Sex and Sects, the story of Mormon polygamy, United <laughs> Complex Marriage. It's such a great title, Sex and Sects. I wish I had thought about it. Um, but so often we kind of, talk about Mormonism as being different and weird and strange for their sexual practices. Mormons imagine themselves as peculiar, um, polygamy really being kind of one of the reasons they imagine that. And the sexual practices of the 19th century religious people were peculiar. Generally, Mormonism was not unique in this kind of new way of thinking about kinship and marriage and sex and bodies um, and so putting really kind of the big three in conversation is really was really incredible. So Stuart Davenport covers, of course, Mormon polygamy as a way of expanding the kingdom of God and doing these kinship networks, but he also puts them in conversation with shakers who were practicing celibacy. Um, you know, there's like two shakers now. So we see how kind of that worked out. Um, but also really interestingly, Oneida complex marriage. Um, for those unfamiliar with the Oneida community, Oneida practiced a form of marriage where it was really kind of a proto-eugenic movement of trying to, you know, in, to put it into LDS language to raise up righteous seed where certain people 
um, passed along their genetic information and created really kind of super people. Um, and so putting these three together, I think really creates a well-rounded image of what 19th century sexual practices was and how it intersected with religion. Um, I think people kind of often, you know, I always, you always hear like puritanical thrown around as a way to talk about conservative religion. Um, and now more and more, especially with the book, I'm going to plug a book that's not Mormon related, um, hot Protestants, hot, hot Protestantism uh, about Puritanism and showing that uh, Puritans were not puritanical when it came to sex. So I think kind of imagining the intersection of religion and sex is a really important conversation for people who are interested in religion to think about. And this is a really great place to start. Well, it sounds like an update of Lord Foster's book, Religion and Sexuality, The Shakers, the Mormons, and the Oneida Com Community. That's from the 80s. I read that in a religious studies class when I was in college. I've never read that. What? Yeah, that's a classic. And but it's the exact same subject. So I, you must be like taking the next step from that. Okay, Andrew. Uh, well, since Christina brings up polygamy, uh, another history-related book from this last year uh, that relates to polygamy came out from the Tanner Trust Fund in the J. Will J. Willard Marriott Library. It was called, I I'm picking out books with long titles this year, Fact, Fiction, and Polygamy, A Tale of Utah War Intrigue, 1857 to 1858, A.G. Brown's The Ward of the Three Guardians. So, as you probably know, in the 1800s, uh, authors loved to make up stories and write novels about the scary Mormons. Uh, Sherlock Holmes' A Study in Scarlet is another famous example. Uh, Michael Austin and Artis Parshall have done some series with uh, Coford books on dime novel Mormons, some of the scary Mormon literature that came out of the time period. And uh, during this time, A.G. Brown uh, wrote a book called The Ward of the Three Guardians that kind of follows a similar type of an idea. It's about a young woman who is kidnapped during the Utah War period and forced into uh, polygamy and her escape and all of this. And uh, the editors of this book, William P. McKinnon, who knows more about the Utah War than anybody alive, uh, and Kenneth Alfred have edited uh, this and put in some uh, historical footnotes and cross-references and uh, other things to, to give us the context and kind of explain this for modern audiences. And so if you're interested in you know, 19th century uh, takes on Mormonism and novels, and if you're interested in polygamy, uh, this could be a kind of a fun and a fascinating book to check out and get both the modern scholarship on it as well as the original novella and everything. So a fun book to read. I'll throw in one. Um, Heather Belknap, Corey Cropper, and Daryl Lee's Marianne Meets the Mormons, Representations of Mormonism in 19th Century France. Uh, so much Mormon studies is focused on the Anglo-American world uh, and but we're having more just in the last few years about uh, world or global Mormonism and way Mormonism has uh, interacted and been seen in different places in the world. And so this is a I think a really good part of that, looking at how in 19th century France in Republican era France, Mormonism became a very big topic. Surprisingly, it was talked about a lot, but there wasn't actually a lot of Mormons in France. Uh, it was not a very strong, there was not a strong missionary presence in France. But Mormonism as this new idea and this you know, new way of organizing society was a topic that was in the air a lot in France. They weren't, they weren't interested in joining the church, but they were interested in just these, this idea of a new kind of way of organizing the family and society. And so it was often used as a way to 
satirize or talk about parts of French society. You know, say, well, this is this is like, like a Mormon type thing, and and lots of interesting uh, looking at at operas and plays, musicals, uh, other kinds of literature, um, newspaper magazine, uh, newspaper articles about the Mormons. So I've I've been enjoying that. So another one I enjoyed this last year was called Liverpool to Great Salt Lake, the 1851 Journal of Missionary George D. Watt. Now, if you're familiar with the name George D. Watt, it's because the Journal of Discourses, he was the uh, person who would take uh, Pittman shorthand notes of Brigham Young and all the other uh, people's uh, sermons and things back then and became the basis for the Journal of Discourses and many other uh records at the time and he uh, made a record of his journal uh, journey to america i should say in 1851 and uh legene purcell caruth i hope i'm saying her name right uh who has become kind of the modern go-to person in the lds church for uh translating Pittman shorthand into english that we can read has gone and transcribed all of these journals and made them available in this book along with some uh essays and interpretation of what was going on to help being contextualized everything and tell this story and if you're really into understanding more about these pioneer journeys and what was going on and seeing some of these firsthand records that is a very fun book to check out one other i'll put a plug in for uh, is from richard l saunders and coford books it's called the 1920 edition of the book of mormon a Centennial Adventure in Latter-day Saint Book History. I told you I couldn't pick any short titles out this time. Uh, you and I, Andrew, are old enough, probably just remember a little bit when the 1980 version of the Book of Mormon came out. We were both just kids at the time. And the 1920 edition was kind of, the, for the folks around then, was the same as the 1980 edition was for us. This was kind of a major change in formatting and approach to uh, printing and publishing and producing the Book of Mormon. And a lot of general authorities at the time were involved in a committee to prepare this and come up with how it was going to work and redo the footnotes and all these things. And Richard L. Saunders, who has uh, done volumes in the Kingdom of the West series and other books kind of on history of publishing, uh, went through and pretty much every fact or bit of information or anything you could ever possibly want to know about the 1920 edition of the Book of Mormon, he's gone and put this together in kind of a fascinating history of that version of the Book of Mormon and all the changes that went on and and the general authorities were on the committee and what they did and everything else. And it's a little bit on the pricier side. It's about a $70 book, but it's Smith's own and very fancy and well put together and will be a very important reference work, I think, for anyone interested in the history of the publication of the Book of Mormon. Uh, so I just want to mention uh, one more, but also I want to do a plug for uh, In Sacred Loneliness, the documents edited by Compton. Uh, most people in Mormon studies, Mormon history have read in sacred loneliness, really a foundational book on the wives of Joseph Smith and the early years of polygamy. Um, many people in the field, many people who study polygamy would say that it changed their life. Um, I'm one of those people. Uh, this, it was really incredible that Todd Compton published all of the documents that he used. So it's a, it's a compilation of primary sources really of, everything he used to write the book. So if anyone is interested on the history of polygamy, I know it's like a hot topic right now with all of the Joseph Fott polygamy folks. Hello to all of them. Uh, this is a really foundational work to kind of think through what the early years of polygamy looked like. 
So that one. Uh, and then the last one I want to mention um, is Courtney Campbell's Mormonism, Medicine, and Bioethics. Um, I think this is a really important book for Latter-day Saints generally. Um, there's, as we know, there's so much discussion about bioethics right now with abortion debates, with um, assisted suicide, just so many bioethical issues coming up. Um, Mormonism has not yet at this point produced a kind of overview of their bioethical positions or had like kind of rigorous theological debates on bioethics. Of course, there are church positions on it, but there hasn't been a lot um, of kind of theological debate on those issues. And this is really an important intervention for that. So if you are someone who's interested in bioethical issues generally, um, I would highly recommend this book to kind of think through what the history of LDS and Mormon positions are on bioethical and medical questions. I also want to put in a quick plug, uh, sorry for In Sacred Loneliness, the documents. Uh, fascinating book, kind of a fun story behind it. Back in 2020, uh, Joe Geisner and uh, Signature Books put out a book called Writing Mormon History, where each chapter was a Mormon historian kind of telling their stories, why they wrote their book and what it was like. And Todd Compton had a chapter in there on writing In Sacred Loneliness. And after he did that, he kind of thought, hey, maybe I ought to put a book together of all of the documents that inspired me to write the first book. And so he's compiled a lot of these, and you get a lot of the letters and journals and other stuff of these women who were uh, plural wives of Joseph Smith and, and some fascinating and heartbreaking stuff in there. Highly encourage anybody to pick that one up and read it. Um, another one I want to put a little plug in for is Imperial Zions, Religion, Race, and Family in the American West and the Pacific by Amanda Hendricks Kodomo. A fascinating book on Mormonism and race and uh, polygamy and perceptions in the uh, uh, late 19th and early 20th century, and, and a great book to pick up uh, from the University of Nebraska. A very interesting book there. Okay, let's shift to uh, biographies. I like that we have these two new series of short biographies. I, I appreciate the short biographies, University of Illinois' uh, Introductions to Mormon Thought series, and also Signature Press has a new series of short biographies. Signature Press has biographies of Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon by Constance L. Lieber, and uh, one's upcoming about George Q. Cannon and Virginia Sorensen by the one Sorensen by Stephen Carter. Also from Signature, there's two biographies that are not short. They're not part of the short series, but there's also biographies of Susie Young Gates, The Tanners, and D. Michael Quinn have also just come out recently. Andrew, I've read the D. Michael Quinn yeah. one, and, and these are very brief. So, I mean, you're getting, none of these books are over about 120 pages, so it's more of a brief overview of their lives than an in-depth uh, biography. But Gary Toppin gives kind of a fun, quick look at the life of D. Michael Quinn, uh, including a little bit of his background uh, and his writing of several of his more important books, including his hierarchy series and Elder Statesman, Elder Statesman, excuse me, uh, the same-sex dynamics book and uh, Mormonism and the Magic Worldview, and uh, it gives some background and information on those. And if you're a fan of Quinn's books and any of that, I think you'll, you'll find this book to be quite uh, fascinating and fun to read. Very quick, and, and they're very reasonably priced. They're available for nearly like 10 bucks. Uh, and pick those up. They did one on Harold B. Lee that's been out a little bit longer. And like you said, there's the others uh, that have come out a little more recently. Uh, Martha Hughes Cannon was another great book in that series. Again, just a very quick overview of her life and her contributions and, and great stuff. Unfortunately, the, the death of D. Michael Quinn uh, has spurred scholars to 
looking at his life. So we have this biography that came out of him. Uh, also, his memoir, unpublished memoir, was found and published, uh, DNA Mormon. Oh, not not quite. The the unpublished memoir is still unpublished. They're working on that oh, one. That's right. That's uh, right. DNA, DNA Mormon was actually a compilation of, so about a year ago now, uh, they held a conference uh, Benjamin Park, I believe, was one that kind of put that together, and he spoke along with uh, Neil Young, uh, Gary James Brugera, uh Maxine Hanks, uh, Patrick Mason, Christina, who's with us on the podcast, and, and several others, all gave uh, papers on uh, relating to the life of Quinn and uh, his work, and those were compiled into this book, DNA Mormon, that gives you kind of a brief overview of his life and his works. Um, I, I've quite enjoyed the chapters I've read. I actually thought that uh, Neil Young, uh, his chapter in here on uh, a new Mormon history of D. Michael Quinn, actually addresses uh, Quinn's homosexuality and that aspect of his life better than the uh, biography by Gary Topping did. Uh, I do feel that Neil Young missed an opportunity to say, uh, old historian, look at my life. I'm a lot like you were. Uh, there's my little nerd dad joke uh, for the night there. Uh, but it was a fascinating book. Gary James Ruggiero's uh, paper is also very good. Uh, so is Christina's. Christina, I really enjoyed your paper in there. And Maxine Hanks was just excellent as well. Lots of good stuff in there. I really quite enjoyed that book. I think one of the great things about the DNA Mormon book was it was a great opportunity to have many people reflect on his legacy. We, you know, we talk a lot about the books that he actually wrote, but really having people come together to think through the impact that he had on our field and how they impacted scholars and is go are going to impact scholars, I think was really incredible. Um, I just also want to note that um, Mike had a book in the works on post-manifesto polygamy. He spent, I mean, the first time I met Mike, this is just an anecdote. The first time I met Mike was actually in the archive of the Church History Library. I was fumbling over a microfilm machine and this sweet man walked over and helped me learn how to use a microfilm machine. And it was Mike Quinn. And he was going just like sifting through documents. And it was for his post-manifesto polygamy book, which he did not finish. But I just want to note for any listeners that what was in the works for the book were given to someone and they are going, the book is going to be published. So Mike Quinn's post-manifesto polygamy book will be published. That's great to hear. Okay. Let's shift to some books about Christianity and scripture issues. So we have a very big book called Ancient Christians, an Introduction for LDS, came out from Maxwell Institute uh, Press. I just barely got a copy, so I've only begun to look at it, but this is a compilation of essays on ancient Christianity, as the title implies. And for, again, some of us are maybe a little bit older Mormons, we remember kind of the Bruce R. McConkie approach and everybody, you know, those early Christian fathers are all apostates and we don't listen to them and and you only kind of look at what general authorities have to say about the Bible. And there's been a very big shift in recent years in uh, the Mormon approach to uh, the New Testament, I think, and ancient Christianity. And so all the authors in this are going back and looking at uh, the early Christian church and the contributions that were made and how this can relate to uh, modern Mormonism and uh, trying to get a better feel for the uh, culture of the New Testament and everything that was going on. And it's, it's a very beautifully done book. I mean, it's like a high quality paper and glossy and a lot of artwork and a lot of charts and maps and very interesting things. Uh, it looks to be very good. I, I can't comment too much on it yet since I just got a copy, but it looks absolutely fascinating. Hmm. 
at least a shift among some scholars who, who want to go in this direction. And there's another book from Singapore just came out called Eight Myths of the Great Apostasy by Gregor McCarty, which also apparently wants to go in this direction of reevaluating and reappreciating uh, early Christianity. As a member of the Great and Abominable, prou a proud member of the Great and Abominable Whore of the Earth, I want to know, I mean, the ancient Christian, ancient Christians book, I mean, Catherine Gines-Taylor is really incredible in kind of trying to think through ancient Christianity and the restoration. I think this is a really important topic for Latter-day Saints, not only for what you were mentioning with this kind of big conundrum about what do we do with the church fathers as a restoration movement? Um, are they all apostate or do we need to claim them in some way? Um, more and more I've seen Latter-day Saints kind of quote the church fathers or trying to connect them to Mormon ideas. And so I think this, um, I think the ancient Christians book in particular will be a really foundational book to kind of think through what the church fathers were doing, what the ancient church was, um, what it was looking at. Also, the eight myths of the great apostasy. Um, I think we're in an interesting moment of while the church, you know, is still kind is still very much looking at itself as a restoration, it has slowly kind of moved away from thinking of a great apostasy or at least writing off other faiths as apostate. And so I think that's an interesting moment too. Uh, while we're in this, I just want to plug a non-Mormon book that I think really matters. For anyone who's interested in ancient Christianity, WHC Friend, not like best friends, but F-R-E-N-D, wrote a book, The Rise of Christianity. It's the first 400 years of the religion. It's like, it's huge. It's huge for being 400 years of history. But if anyone's interested in that topic, it's from a really incredible scholar and uh, Fortress Press published it. Can't recommend it enough. Anyway. That's my weird plug as the great and abominable. So while we're talking about the New Testament, ancient Christianity, back in 2018, Thomas Wayman, a BYU religion professor, released a book called The New Testament, A Translation for Latter-day Saints. Uh, that book has gone out of print, but it was republished in a revised edition this year by Coford Books. Uh, the LDS Church is, of course, going over the New Testament again this year, and they've released it in time for that. This version includes new and updated footnotes that were left out of the previous edition, as well as a number of corrections and other updated information. And if you're looking for a modern translation of the uh, New Testament, something along the lines of the NRSV, but that also has uh, footnotes and connections to uh, the Book of Mormon and other LDS literature. Uh, Wayman goes through and does just that. He puts it in modern English and, and has uh, LDS ideas and thoughts in mind and those connections, but it gives you that more readable, more scholarly version of uh, the New Testament that you might get again from the NRSV or something like that. So kind of an interesting book uh, for those that want kind of an LDS approach to a modern language Bible. Okay, let's turn to novels. So I mentioned Stephen L. Peck's Hate Days Void at the top. Another book published by VCC Press is John Benyon's Spin, a terse thriller about a young mother who kidnaps her daughter from an abusive ex-husband and is on the run away from him. The interesting thing about this book is that Benyon frequently steps into the narrative and comments on what's going on. And he writes the book using a spinning wheel. So he doesn't plan the plot. The wheel determines for him where the plot's going to go. And the main character also uses the spinning wheel for, to decide her, herself what, what she's going to do. And there's a lot of uh, interesting discussion there about fate and choices. And a very interesting 
kind of experimental novel. As long as we're on BCC Press, Mette Ivy Harrison published two novels with them, both sequels, uh, Woman's Book of Mormon, Volume 2. This is like a midrash of the Book of Mormon, imagining characters who are female and putting them at the center of the action. So 20 women from the time of Alma to the time of Christ's coming. Very agenda-driven, but she's a great author. And she talks about how women's voices could change the carnage that men seem determined to perpetuate. Also, Genealogy of Werewolves, the second in her very fun speculative series with vampires and werewolves in Salt Lake City and around the temple. Andrew, you read that, didn't you? Uh, Yes, I loved both of those books. Genealogy of Werewolves was a lot of fun. I've been quite enjoying uh, the series, and I'm waiting anxiously for it. There's going to be five total, I understand. And uh, this book picks up a little after the first one concludes, and uh, you learn more about it. So this is in a kind of a fictionalized version of Salt Lake and the Church, where there's vampires and werewolves and uh, other, you know, kind of mythical uh, type beings, and you kind of find out the connections and everything that's going on, and there's a murder and kind of a mystery involved, and they have to solve this, and it's a lot of fun to read. She weaves in a lot of kind of political commentary type stuff as well, you know, things that are going on in the the church and stuff with uh, relations to the LGBT community and other things and how the church tends to view people in a very fun, uh, just like any good, you know, science fiction and fantasy tends to comment on real life. She kind of does the same thing and I absolutely enjoyed these books. Uh, Women's Book of Mormon Volume 2 is great. Uh, Each chapter is kind of told from the perspective of a different woman who's inserted into the Book of Mormon stories. I think my favorite chapter was one uh, who's the mother of one of the sons of Helaman. And of course, you know, the sons of Helaman are always painted as these uh, faithful young men who didn't die in, during the war because their faith was so great. Uh, but Medi goes in and takes the approach of this mother whose son is forever changed by the PTSD he experiences because of the war and how she cannot look upon it as a uh, act of faith. It really makes you think and just very, very great stuff, very powerful. I would encourage anybody to read both of those books. Another novelist, John Bender, has a novella that is a memoir, but, you know, it's based apparently very closely on his own life of a missionary coming home to find out that his mother's dying of cancer, a very heartbreaking story of faith in a God who doesn't always give us what we desperately want. This missionary feels like he's seen miracles, but he's not going to get one with his mother. And it's, it's very much about prayer, relationship with God. It's very experimental form with the typesetting, kind of like modern poetry, the way that he shows the kind of prayers he's doing and the thoughts that he's having. I've heard very strong things about that. Sarah Hamla Press put out a novel by Darren Cousins called History of Honey Springs. Darren Cousins uh, frequently writes about rural Utah, the rural West. And this one's set in 1966 of a Utah Vietnam vet who comes home, finds out he's inherited a ranch in Wyoming and moves there and sees the town is split by tragedy and tries to figure out how he can engage with this community and perhaps help them move towards forgiveness and healing. In science fiction or speculative fiction, uh, Brandon Sanderson continues to publish very interesting novels. Uh, the, Less, the Lost Metal is the seventh in his Mistborn series. Uh, DJ Butler has a novel called Abbot of Darkness about a forensic accountant on a planet being terraformed. Uh, he's always got great characters and great action in his novels. Moving to short fiction collections, William Morris put out a collection called The Darkest Abyss, Strange Mormon Stories. And I love this collection of very, very strange stories. Morris has fairly high expectations of his readers, usually starting a story in media res. Uh, so we have to figure out 
what's going on and is this a fantasy or a horror or science fiction alternative history or what it is kind of tracing these clues and figuring out what's going on in these stories that are just full of inventive ideas is a big part of the fun another short story collection is michael Phillips' the year they gave women the priesthood and other stories from signature Philrup published a lot of realistic and naturalistic mormon stories and dialogue in sunstone in the 80s and 90s and this is a collection of his stories from 1991 mostly very realistic stories often set on navajo reservations where Philrup lives the title story, The Year They Gave Women the Priesthood, is the only speculative story, story in, the, in the collection. Imagine if the prophet announces in general conference that priesthood is being taken from the men and given to women across the board, which reminds us of Eloise Bell's great story, The Meeting, which is a tongue-in-cheek, you know, fun reversal of the male and female roles. This is a much more kind of serious. This is focusing on the sadness that the men have, that they've lost this power, and the kind of toxic direction that some of these men go to because of that. So... I've heard very good things about this. There's a series of science fiction collections put out by a new publisher named Hemeline. Hemeline, which is run by Joe Monson, a science fiction author. And he has this new series called The Legacy of the Corridor, where he's publishing uh, collections of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and alternative history. Probably the the one I'm most interested in is, is Lee Allred's collection, Down the Arches of the Years. Lee Allred writes alternative histories most of all, but also steampunk fantasy, some horror and often includes elements of Mormon history, his Mormon heritage, to inform this great world-building, really fun stories. I like them a lot. This series also includes a republication of a novel, The Bacillus of Beauty, by Harriet Stark, a novel published in 1900 by a New York publisher, by a Mormon author, which looks interesting. Now we're going to turn to memoirs. First, we're going to start with making up for uh, something we did last year where we said, here's a book, and then nobody read it, and the author made fun of us for saying that. So tell us about Scrupulous, Christina. Uh, So Taylor Kirby wrote a memoir about kind of the intersection of religion and anxiety disorders. And he wrote about scrupulosity, something that, you know, you see people talk about a lot online. You see people who are in faith transitions, who are faithful Mormons, who are ex-Mormon, all talking about dealing with really what is labeled as an obsessive compulsive disorder toward religion. Um, And so Taylor Kirby's memoir is a really touching and vulnerable look into what that is like for people to have scrupulosity and to deal with obsessive compulsions toward God. I read it as someone who has diagnosed OCD, not toward my faith, but I don't like germs at all, Um, in in a literal OCD way. And so reading it through the lens of someone who's really gone through a lot dealing with my own OCD and kind of thinking through what that would be like in terms of religion, it really changed the way I look at people who talk about scrupulosity online and the way that we talk about sin generally. You know, I've often described my own OCD as I constantly see the world with covered in paint and germs are paint. And I just like can visually see it spreading everywhere. I've never really understood what that looks like in terms of religion and using my own kind of background and then reading Taylor's memoir really made me see what that could look like in terms of religion of seeing sin as this paint that covers things and how we kind of can obsessively try to get rid of this. And it can become something that goes into the realm of a mental of a mental illness. So if you are someone who is struggling with mental illness, if you're someone who's struggling with anxiety disorders, first I want to highly encourage you to get support, to find help and resources. They are out there for you. Um, but also this might be a great memoir to read to realize that you're not alone in this. All right. 
probably the, the it memoir of the year people are talking about, and it seems to be a big bestseller, is Rachel Ruckert's East Winds, a memoir and study of marriage customs around the world and a, a travel memoir. Uh, Rachel is the editor of Exponent 2 and is a great proponent of literary work. Uh, she's actually, she helps people write their own memoirs as well. But this is about her early marriage, her background before her marriage, then her marriage itself. And when she marries, they have some time apparently, and she and her new husband decide to go on this worldwide trip and study. And she's an anthropologist, has been trained in anthropology. So she studies marriage practices around the world. And she's in South America and in Europe and in Asia, looking at these different places. I think my favorite part of the book is her and her husband's experiences towards the end of the book on the Camino de Santiago in France and Spain, which is some just really vivid storytelling. She's able to make even minor characters very memorable, which is, I think, a hallmark of great travel writing. Another memoir this year is Michael Hicks' Wineskin, Freakin' Jesus in the 60s and 70s. Michael Hicks is a music scholar, recently retired from BYU. And this is the story of him coming from a Protestant background, just a, a mainstream ba background. But then in the late 60s, early 70s, he involved in what he calls the Jesus Freak movement and rock and roll and that kind of life. And then moving into Mormonism and out of Mormonism and then back into Mormonism, he gets involved in kind of a cultish group within Mormonism for a little while, but then comes into mainstream Mormonism. It's, it's a very fun, he's a very witty author. It's really more about his intellectual and artistic progress and accomplishments than it is of a spiritual journey. It's a lot of fun. Andrew, you read that, didn't you? Yes, I did. I've quite enjoyed Michael Hicks' works. Uh, I read his Spencer Kimball record collection that came out a couple of years ago, a collection of essays he wrote on music and his life and different things, and quite enjoyed that and was looking forward to this and have really enjoyed it. Has a very fascinating upbringing growing up kind of during the you know, 60s and 70s and all the hippie stuff going on and everything else. And like you said, transitioning through different uh, religions. And, and it's really a fun, enjoyable book. The way he writes in his style is very enjoyable to read. And uh, if you want something that's kind of fun and different, definitely pick this book up. It's very enjoyable. Okay. A few others. Matthew Wickman wrote Life to the Whole Being, the spiritual memoir of a literature professor. He's a humanities professor at BYU, and he's very interested in spiritual experiences and how he can express those spiritual experiences and linking his experiences with great experiences in literature, trying to talk about how they've been expressed in the past. It's a very serious book, but he's, he's a very beautiful author. I think he's a really good way of taking uh, of a turn of phrase, but much more serious than, than the Weinstein book. Jason Olson and James Goldberg worked on J Jason's story called The Burning Book a memoir of his conversion from Reformed Judaism to the LDS Church through the Book of Mormon. And he talks a lot about how the Book of Mormon could appeal to someone with a Jewish background like himself. Uh, he became a chaplain as well. He talks about that. Eddie Leroy Ellis, Panther Priesthood. This is a memoir of a Oakland Black Panther who joins the church. Don Bluth, Somewhere Out There, My Animated Life. This is the autobiography of the animator and filmmaker who made uh, was at Disney and then created his own animation company and had a lot of ups and downs with that. I've heard that's very good. Jeanette McCurdy, I'm glad my mom died. This is the actress who was in Ike Harley, was raised LDS. I think Mormonism is not a huge part of the book. It's, it's a background, her background, but she has a very difficult family and there's a lot of uh, drug abuse in it as well. So, but I've heard very, uh, also a very kind of witty, interesting memoir. Did you read that, Andrew? 
I have not read that one, but there has been a lot of talk about this online and on social media. Uh, Her mom was her stage manager and and really pushed her to be involved in a lot of things and keep her weight down and all this other stuff. And as the title says, I'm glad my mom died. Um, She was rather upset with her mother and it talks about her relationship with her mom and lots of things. And every, every, uh, Former LDS and liberal LDS woman I know who's read this book has absolutely loved it and uh, has a lot of praise. So a lot of people are very interested in this book. There's two collections of multi-author essays and memoirs about people in the church in re- in marginal positions, you might say. One, Alice Faulkner Birch edited My Lord, He Calls Me, Stories of Faith by Black American Latter-day Saints. This is from Desert Book. But I've read some really strong views about this being a very, being a fairly hard hitting look at the way uh, African Americans and other Black saints have been treated in the church. And it's supposed to be an eye opener to other members of the church, the the experiences that these African Americans and and other Black people have had. Also, Carrie Spencer Prey and Jen Lee Smith edited I Spoke to You with Silence Essays from Queer Mormons of Marginalized Genders from the University of Utah Press. Very, very good book. Let me put in a strong plug for that one. Uh, the the two editors here, uh, Carrie Spencer Prey and Jen Lee Smith, have compiled 39 essays. Most books that have been written about uh, LDS and the LGBTQ community or that kind of thing have all basically come from the perspective of white homosexual men and that kind of an angle. And they basically, when they put this book together, they tried to get all, all the authors that are involved in this book, all the essays are from women, uh, minorities, transgender individuals, people who are you know, not just LGBTQ, but minorities in some other way. And there's some very powerful and poignant essays in this book. They divide it up into four different sections on identity, uh, relationships, shame, suicide, and being in the closet, and essays on the church. And it's, ex- it's just extremely powerful. I'd recommend this to anybody, especially anyone who might have been LGBTQ and LDS or still is LDS and is LGBTQ or has family members who are. Very powerful book. Very good to read. One more. I'm so sorry. I have one more memoir that I want to mention. And it's a little bit different because it's not like the traditional memoir of Mormonism. Um, but Jeremy Christensen wrote a memoir from the Susquehanna to the Tiber, a memoir of conversion from Mormonism to the Roman Catholic Church. It was published by a Catholic press, by Ignatius Press. Interesting for a few reasons. I think so often we imagine a Mormon, quote, unquote, faith crisis or faith transition being from Mormonism to nothing or Mormonism to some non-denominational tradition. Um, But the experience of people who transition to similarly structural hierarchical religions that are conservative are kind of not talked about. Jeremy is a lawyer. In Virginia, and he was raised LDS. He talks about his life in Blanding, Utah, and you know, being raised in the church, serving a mission in Argentina, and then leaving and eventually joining Roman Catholicism. One of the things that I think is interesting, he has a chapter that's kind of very CES letter adjacent, but he also has a chapter that's a really interesting overview of the church fathers, similar to what we talked about with Christian history. Um, but one of the things I think both Catholics and LDS people might find compelling is the way the, the through line of the whole memoir is how he talks about the idea of a testimony and what knowing, quote unquote, a religion is true, is based on, and how within Mormonism, this kind of like burning in the bosom feeling versus other religious traditions based on intellect, I think might be an interesting framework. I've seen a lot of ex-Mormons online talk about 
all religions, you know, feel a burning in the bosom. And like, yeah, that's true. But kind of thinking through how other forms of Christianity talk about knowledge of God, I think it's a really interesting kind of intersection to make people think through what both of these traditions that think of themselves as so opposite actually are saying to each other. So I want to do a plug for Jeremy Christensen's memoir, uh, From the Susquehanna to the Tiber. One more before we move on. Back in 2016, uh, Holly Welker edited a volume for the University of Illinois Press called Bearing Witness. 36 Mormon women talk candidly about love, sex, and marriage. She did a follow-up this year called Revising Eternity, 27 Latter-day Saint Men Reflect on Modern Relationships. Uh, This, to me, was a very powerful book. It's men talking about how LDS teachings on patriarchy and other things have impacted their lives. I was especially touched by the opening essay by Stephen Carter. So Stephen Carter and his wife at one point made the choice that they would do things kind of in reverse of most LDS families. He chose to stay home and raise their daughter while she went out and was kind of the full-time employee outside of the house. And he was raising their daughter and going through all of the experiences that an LDS mom might usually go through. And one day in elders quorum, all the men are talking about, you know, the mother's role and all the things that the mothers do. And, and he kind of got after them and said, Hey, look, I've been the one raising my daughter and I've had all these experiences with her that you were all missing out on. And I think it's kind of a shame that you really kind of categorize things this way and are missing out on some of these precious experiences. And the room just kind of went silent and then moved on. And he realized he was living a very unique life compared to these other men and and went on to talk about some of his experiences and everything. But a very powerful book looking at how, you know, we often talk about how patriarchy and those kind of things impacts the women. Uh, This is kind of showing how it also impacts uh, men and and the the way that uh, we are in the church and everything. But a very uh, interesting book there. I'd encourage people to check out. You mentioned Stephen Carter, his experiences in the Elders Quorum. It seems like every Stephen Carter essay talks about something in the Elders Quorum and somehow that's true for everybody else. Uh, I love his essays. I maybe we'll kind of talk about that a little bit. So Stephen Carter is the editor of Sunstone, and Sunstone is often the place where we have places where fiction and personal essay, uh, as well as scholarship, can be published along with dialogue. Right? Sunstone's always been kind of our junior because a couple of years in the junior friend, but they've pretty much gone to podcasting and, of course, their conference. They're they're still doing, but they're still. Again, they're putting out quite a few essays through their podcasts. Another venue that's been out there recently is just just recently has begun is Wayfair, which is a publication of Terrell Givens Faith Matters Foundation. The magazine Wayfair is edited by Zachary Davis. It's largely an online magazine, but there, there's also a print version. But they have personal essays, interviews, poetry, and criticism, as well as maybe a little bit of scholarship. But mostly, I believe it's more in the, in the realm of uh, nonfiction. Uh, personal writing, certainly more on the faithful side than Sunstone, but another venue that's out there that's that's doing interesting work. Let's move on to comics. You would maybe be surprised. Is there there's a there's a comics? There's a graphic novel part of our discussion? Yes, there is. Strangely enough, there's been a a trend of comics, graphic novels published about Joseph Smith in the last two years. And in fact, we have a review coming out in the next issue of Dialogue by Theric Jepson looking at these three graphic novels about the life of Joseph Smith. Let's go ahead and mention them here. I think the very highest quality of the books is Noah Van Skyver's Joseph Smith and the Mormons. Van Skyver comes from a Mormon background. He's not practicing Mormon. He's not in the church at all now, but he's very interested in his background. His He had a memoir about growing up Mormon 
that won a AML, AML award a few years ago. And now he has this quite large story of the life of Joseph Smith and the Mormons that came out. Well, both I know both of you read that. Andrew, we'll start with you. What did you think of it? I did. I quite enjoyed it. Very fascinating. He, he, I, I love his approach and his art. He, he works a lot of very subtle things into the panels. And as you're, if you're not really kind of looking close, you might miss. One interesting thing about it is that it's all told through dialogue. There's no like little notes or uh, other things kind of woven into it. So it's all from the perspective of the characters, everything that's going on. And it's an excellent job. I'd encourage anybody. To, and it's very highly quality produced book too. It's kind of a faux leather fancy cover and looks very nice on your bookshelf. So an excellent volume to pick up. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's really well done. If you're someone who likes graphic novels or comics, it's up there with really kind of, I mean, I would put it up there with some of the greats. Like when I think of really well-known graphic novels, I think of like Blanket. I don't know if either of you read that, um, but it's kind of like one of the pinnacle of graphic novels. It's up there with that. It's really beautiful. I really loved how he rounded it out. The end is my favorite part, the epilogue. I think it's worth reading just to see how he ends the story. So I definitely recommend that. Even if you're not someone who likes graphic novels, it's worth it for how he tells the story. Also this year, uh, the second volume of Mark Elwood's The Glass Looker series came out. And Andrew, you read that, right? I did, yes. So Elwood has published these all on his own. He uh, did some fundraising to produce these. Uh, this is his second volume that came out this year, and he's taking a lot deeper dive than uh, Van Skyver is. So he's only up to the early 1820s still. So as this series or as this volume picks up, uh, he talks a lot about uh, Joseph Smith's treasure digging, and he goes up through the visits of Moroni and the first attempt to uh, retrieve the golden plates from the uh, Hill Camorra. And he weaves in a lot of sources. Uh, Elwood has really kind of gone and done his research. He's looked at all of these different accounts uh, that people gave of these events from this period in Joseph Smith's life and kind of combined them and used some artistic license. There were stories I wasn't familiar with. He goes way beyond the kind of the correlated official history. And there's stories in here of uh, how Joseph Smith and his father and Alvin uh, went back to the hill after the first attempt to get the Book of Mormon or the gold plates failed. And they were kind of looking for where they were buried. And Joseph Smith being physically thrown off of the mountain by the angel and lightning and all these things going on. And very, very just kind of fascinating and interesting. And he gives all of his notes and his background as to where he got this information. And uh, it's not quite as handsomely produced of a book as the Van Skyver volume is, but I absolutely love Elwin's artwork. It's beautiful. He's released prints of some of these and it's very, very beautifully painted and depicted artwork. And I've quite enjoyed both of these volumes and I'm eagerly looking forward to the next volume that's going to be coming out. So great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Van Skyver is a leading comic artist on kind of the alternative artist scene. And so, yeah, he's very high quality stuff, although, you know, not beautiful, perhaps in the kind of my traditional sense, but I think, I think very beautiful, just great art that he does. Elwood is more kind of an independent guy, you know, doing it on his own, but I've been very impressed with his art as well. And then the third one in the, in this, of this group is Andrew Gnopp and Saul Valudo's Pillar of Light, which they've also done their second series. They come from more of the, the DC Marvel world. And so their comic is much more of that kind of style. And they're much more hew much closely to the traditional LDS church description of the first vision and Joseph Smith's early life. 
let's look at poetry. I'm not great at poetry, but we're going to have actually a dialogue book report uh, discussion of poetry. We're going to have some poetry experts talking about Mormon poetry over the last couple of years. So look forward to that coming up soon. I found a good way to get into it is Iriantum has put out two themed issues about poetry in 2022. One, Wine into Water, Contemporary LDS Poems About Jesus, edited by Kevin Klein, and another one on Long Poetry, edited by Michael R. Collins. And these, I think, were because they're a theme and there's an introduction to it, kind of giving me a guide. I, it was, I really enjoyed reading both of these. So I recommend that as a good entry into poetry. Maybe my favorite, favorite poet of this year, who's in both of these collections, is J.S. Absher, or Stan Absher. He has a collection called Skating Rough Ground that I liked a lot. Also, Tyler Chadwick, uh, Litany with Wings. And now the rest of these, I'm just going to, oh, one, let me just tell you, Rio Cortez's Golden Axe. Rio Cortez is an African-American poet of great note. She's uh, quite well-known in the poetry world. But she grew up in Utah. She's descended from Abner Howell, who was an African-American who was a member of the church in the early 20th century. And a lot of her book is about uh, the experiences of African-Americans in Utah in the 20th century. Some other books that have been published that I've heard good things about, Scott Hale's Hemingway in Paradise and other Mormon poems. Uh, a lot of them are about people who are not Mormon, but now they're in paradise. And what are their experiences in paradise? One more is Kimberly Johnson's Fatal. Kimberly Johnson is uh, an excellent poet whose husband passed away this year from cancer. And so a lot of this book is about that. All right, let's go back to nonfiction. There's some books that have come out recently about current issues in Mormon society. Andrew, do you want to tell us about one of those? Uh, yes. So one book I quite enjoyed that I read this last year was called How to Heal Our Racial Divide, What the Bible Says and the First Christians Knew About Racial Reconciliation. Now, this is not technically an LDS book, but it does have an LDS connection. Uh, Derwin L. Gray uh, Pastor Gray, the author, played football for BYU uh, back in the 90s, and then he went on to play professional football, and while doing so, had a conversion experience and uh, embraced Jesus and decided to start getting more involved with ministry and church. Uh, but he and his wife found that he is a black man, an African-American, and they couldn't find any churches that they felt uh, were comfortable for he and his wife to attend, and so they started their own. Uh, that they called Transformation Church, that had a goal to be multi-ethnic and multi-generational and involve anybody who wanted to attend. And uh, when he wrote this book, he was invited to present on it at BYU because of his connections there, and, and BYU really helped kind of push uh, this book. So that's kind of the Mormon connection there. Uh, but he talks a lot about how as he went back through the New Testament and began to study scripture, get his master's degree in uh, religion so that he could be a pastor, uh, that he really felt that uh, the teachings of the Bible really uh, were meant to be embraced uh, multi-ethnically and involve people of all races and ethnicities, and there should be an equality uh, that is sadly missing from a lot of Christian denominations. And he does a lot in this book to try and explain the biblical perspective on being more open to uh, embracing all peoples and all races and all ethnicities and, and how we can do that better in our churches. So I, I really quite enjoyed this book and its take on things and, and how to you know, do that better. And then I had two I'd like to add. The first is Exceptionally Queer, uh, Mormon Peculiarity and U.S. Nationalism by Kay Mormon. Her last name is Mormon, but it's M-O-R-M-A-N. And they wrote, wrote 
a really, I think a really thought provoking book. Um, a few years ago, we had Peter Coviello writing make yourselves gods, um, looking at Mormonism and polygamy and queerness and peculiarity. And Cave Mormon's book is a really good counter to that kind of thinking through this question of peculiarity. And instead of looking at it in the same way, they're arguing that Mormonism was actually used in a way to uphold Americanness, that Mormons were never queer or that peculiar. Mormons were always kind of a way of upholding what is American exceptionalism. And so for anyone interested in queer theory, queer issues, polygamy, how the state operates, it's a really great look at those issues. Um, the other one I want to mention is Leah Sotile's When the Moon Turns to Blood, Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell, and the Story of Murder, Wild Faith, and End Times. A lot of people watch the Lori Vallow case, the Chad Daybell case. There was Netflix documentaries. Leah's book, it's first and foremost, really well written. So it's not just this kind of sensational, weird, whatever. It's a really well-written, thoughtful book. She became kind of well-known in these circles from doing Bundyville about the Bundy family. And this book, I've kind of noted to a few people that I think this is the book John Krakauer wanted to write where it's the story of Mormonism and what happens when Mormonism can potentially become violent, but in a way that is not really kind of doing this broad brushstroke of the entire faith, but really looking at a particular family and what can happen. So for anyone who's been following the Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell story, for anyone who's interested in that, I cannot recommend When the Moon Turns to Blood enough. All right. Is there any other books that we've left out that you want to make sure we cover? We've covered a lot. We did. We talked about every single book. <laughs> That's it. That's all there is. There's no more books. Uh, actually, I do want to mention that Steve Shields did a new edition of his, of his path. Urgent Pass and the Restoration. Yeah, there's a new edition of that. So I want to mention that. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for participating in this. We've all got our homework now. We all know what to do. We can't read them all, but there's a lot of great choices here. So I'm. Thank you for all those publishers and authors out there and all the great work that they do. Hey, before we go, you're going to have Christina talk about her conference down in Southern Utah. That's right. Christina, tell us about that. Uh, yeah. So Joseph Stewart at Maxwell Institute and I um, are host hosting a conference in honor of Juanita Brooks at Utah Tech, formerly Dixie State. It's going to be March 23rd to 25th. The 23rd, we are going to be having Elder Stephen Snow General uh, Emeritus General Authority and former church historian talk about history and the importance of history. It's going to be in the St. George Tabernacle. You heard it here first. And then the, tw the 24th, we're going to be having all-day panels on issues of Mormon violence, the Mormon image, colonialism, a million other things. And then on the 25th, we're going to be having a tour of St. George with Lindsay Hanson Park. She's going to be doing Juanita Brooks's tour. And we're going to be having a tour of Mountain Meadows with Richard Turley Jr. and Barbara Jones-Brown, who just wrote the most recent edition of their their Mountain Meadows Massacre book. So it's going to be really great to stay tuned for March 23rd, 25th in, at Utah Tech University. Thank you. I want to go. I'm trying to arrange my travel schedule now. And thank you to all who are listening to the Dialogue Book Report. This show is produced and edited by me with additional editing and music by Daniel Foster-Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. This show is a part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent podcasts which promote inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. 
including wonderful shows like Face and Hat, featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepson. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, and this is Dialogue Out Loud. My eyelashes were subtly coated in matte black mascara. On my cheeks, a light dusting of dusty rose-colored blush powder, just enough that I could feel comfortable and almost myself. On Tuesday, my visiting teacher said she knew I was really busy at work and brought over a casserole for dinner, the chief ingredient of which was zucchini. Maybe it isn't the Lamanite who needs to forsake the incorrect traditions of our forefathers. Maybe it's the belief of racial hierarchy that we need to forsake. Never learn to play the organ, the old woman told me. You might get a different calling from time to time. But make no mistake, once you go down the path of becoming a ward organist, that's what you'll be until you die. Each year, we bring you even more great fiction, personal essays, and poetry taken from the pages of our quarterly journal. We couldn't do this without your support. So thank you for reading, listening, and supporting Dialogue with your donations, subscriptions, or by simply leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. For more content like this, or to get involved with Dialogue events, go to DialogueJournal.com. Dialogue Podcast Network.